Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Motherbirth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hi, everybody. It's Laura and Melissa here with Mother Birth, and we are so excited today to have Lauren Smith Brody with us. Um, Lauren is the founder of the Fifth Trimester Movement, and we're excited to have her here to share a little bit about um, the work that she's doing and kind of where it came from in her story. Lauren, why, Lauren, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Um, so I am um, sitting in the middle of New York City talking to you guys um, from a magazine office. And I was for a long time um, a magazine editor at Glamour Magazine. Um, right now I'm doing a temporary fill-in gig somewhere else as a little side gig. But I um, had both of my children when I was working in the publishing industry. And when I was pregnant, I found that there was a lot of support out there around pregnancy, um, a lot around birth, a lot around the newborn phase. So the first four trimesters really were covered. But then when I got back to work, I found the, it, all of the support sort of fell off. And I was working in what should have been and, and what actually relatively was a pretty supportive industry. I was surrounded by, you know, mostly women in our office who were really comfortable talking about their bodies and, you know, and sort of personal life needs. That was all okay. Um, I was, you know, am still thankfully married to a really great guy who's supportive of my career. Um, we had, you know, enough money and savings that I could take um, some of the weeks that I was allowed to take off were unpaid and that was okay. We could save up for it. So I had kind of all the stars were aligned to have a great experience. And yet actually what I learned is that culturally in the United States, even what is considered a great experience really, really falls dramatically underneath what would make a good experience for mom's emotional health, for baby's physical health. And so I sort of fell to pieces when I got back to work. Yeah. Um, I managed to still get my job done. Um, but there were a couple of moments when people said to me, I just want to thank you for being so open and honest about what is hard about new motherhood at work. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I was a boss at that point. And I thought, have I, have I, you know, sort of been unprofessional? Have I not handled this well? And, and then, you know, these people would say, because you've shown me I can do it too one day, you know, mm. that, that warts, warts and all, this is going to be doable and it's going to be okay. So thank you. And I think for me, that was really a eureka moment. Um, I was kind of at a turning point in my career, which is something that a lot of women experience after having children anyway. I wanted to find kind of different kinds of meaning in my work. If I was negotiating leaving, you know, my newborn son, it, I wanted it to be for a good reason. So fast forward, um, two kids and several years, and I had this idea in the back of my head for the fifth trimester, because I really did feel like what I had gone through was a trimester. It was a finite period of transition um, that I ultimately, it was hard, but I ultimately benefited from. And looking back on it, I was able to see, hey, I got through that. I can get through pretty much any other career or life transition that's ahead of me too. Um, but I also, like I said, I knew that that my experience was one of, of privilege, to be totally honest. And so I did a lot of research before I jumped into this. I surveyed almost 800 women 
I interviewed, I did deep hour-long interviews with 100 more, plus a bunch with experts. I looked at 100 scientific studies to, to really figure out, you know, what can we do to better support ourselves and, and, our, and our coworkers in this transition back to work. And so that became the skeleton for my book, The Fifth Trimester, which was published last spring by Doubleday and is actually about to come out in paperback um, this spring in March. And um, mm. I'm really, really excited that over the past year, I, you know, I'm an author. It's something I always wanted to do, write a book, but I also have been able to launch essentially what is a movement. So I now go into companies and I do speaking and I do consulting to help them make not just better um, better policies, but really better culture that allows employees to be able to use those good policies and helps them ultimately retain you know, the, one of their most valuable resources, which is working women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has become my life mission. And I do a lot of you know, side projects and partnerships and this editing gig I'm doing right now, but um, that is my primary focus in my work right now. Lauren, that's so amazing. And I think what is so unique, and we hear this um, from women who have had, like you said, it's kind of this motivating season of coming out of like new motherhood and either back into your professional life or into an alternative professional life. And I just love hearing that kind of passion turned into, um, I mean, almost like activism. How do you... Well, it took me some years to get there, I will yeah, say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like you said, it's the thing, you know, it's on all aspects and, and yeah. you're already doing that just by emulating and by living your life publicly. It with the people that you were working with? Because I think that that is just a really common um, pitfall is that if you don't see what mother, what new motherhood looks like in the context of your career, it's really hard to approach yeah, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious with doing speaking engagements, um, how you kind of find those opportunities or seek them out? Oh, I have sought them. <laughs> I have definitely sought them. Some of it it grew naturally out of um, the publicity that I did when the book came out, first came out in the spring. Um, But I also knew all along that ultimately this book would be a platform for something much bigger. And I cannot tell you how delighted is not even a strong enough word, but, but just how great and fulfilled it makes me feel when I get, there was this morning, you know, somebody tagged me on Instagram with a picture holding her baby. It was her first day back at work. She's a pediatrician. She's going off to do work that really matters to all of us, to, to you and to me and to our, to your listeners. And, um, and the satisfaction that I get out of just the individual interactions is means so much. And so to be able to do it on a bigger scale and go into companies, um, it's been mostly, largely law firms are really interested in having me come in. Um, I've done a bunch of tech firms. I'm actually going to Google next week, which I'm very excited about. American Express the week after that. I've been at Facebook, um, you know, and also some academic institutions, bunch of places. Um, and going in there, what's interesting is not is that it's not just a room full of pregnant bellies, which, you know, obviously I love having an audience that is, that is, you know, my intended audience, but it's also often, um, coworkers, you know, and bosses and people who want to do a better job of supporting women and men through this transition back to work after baby. And to have them all in the same room, even if I said nothing, if I sang the alphabet, the fact that everybody is just all there in the same room, dedicated to making this problem, you know, to solving this problem means a lot culturally to these places. And then, you know, the, the tips and advice that I got, you know, from all of these other women, collectively a working mom mentor for all of us, um, and the studies that I looked at, you know, to be able to actually add the value of, of actual ideas and research and tips and advice is 
that feels like mm-hmm. a bonus. I'm really curious, Lauren, what you found to be the difference between your first postpartum transition and your second, because you talk kind of about how this happened over, you know, the years of early motherhood for you and how, you know, you, you kind of started this, this project to launch this book. And so I'm curious from your first experience postpartum and, and that kind of discovery of what you hadn't yet termed as the fourth, the fifth trimester, but what you were kind of realizing at that time, did you do anything differently with your second, when your second child was born? Were there differences in the experience? How did that kind of, how did that impact the flow of this, this discovery and this learning that this learning journey that you were on? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and I heard this in a lot of my interviewing too, that the first time around, you just, you just don't know what to expect. You know, nobody can really set your expectations for you. And so, you know, having been through it, of course, the second time, not of course, it's not easier for everybody. The second time was easier for me. Um, It was harder to go back to work and leave what was, you know, then my then three-year-old and my newborn, because my three-year-old could ask me to stay Mm -hmm. home. Um, that, that part of it was new and different and hard, but I had actually, so with my first son, both of my sons, that's very strange. Both of my sons are, um, June boys and they're exactly three years apart. In fact, my second son was due on my first son's birthday. Um, although they ended up being off by five days. Mm -hmm. And when I had him, like, I'm not even joking. I can say this because your podcast is called mother birth, but you know, I delivered this baby and I'm looking down at him and same exact weight, same face, same everything. And I thought, oh boy, here we go again. Like these two babies look identical. My experience is going to be the same. And it really wasn't. Same number of stitches? (laughs) Um, Actually, I think yes. (laughs) I think probably yes. Yeah. Um, Although I healed a lot faster, I will say, because nobody told me the first time around to use ice packs. Like how is it possible that no one told me that? It made such a difference. Um, Anyway, but I... um, with my first son, I experienced postpartum anxiety and because I'd never been through it before. And because I was actually the first among our friend group to have a baby. And maybe also because my, my mom, who I'm really close with, um, lives far away for a lot of the, a lot of the challenges that, um, a lot of people who are going through this first time have, I didn't really recognize that's what it was. I knew I was crying all the time. I had heard of the baby blues in some ways. I thought maybe that was normal, but I also didn't share with the people around me some of the scarier thoughts that were in my head because I felt so betrayed by them myself. And um, mm. and I was so ashamed that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't feel like the kind of mom I'd always envisioned that I would be and that it didn't all happen easily and naturally. And I knew it would be hard. I knew I'd be tired. I didn't know that you know I'd feel so emotionally wrapped up in um, in nursing. And so when my baby wouldn't latch that I took that as a personal affront anyway, all of them getting a little too dramatic, but, but so, so that all of that stuff, the second time around, just the physicality of it and the expectations of how long it would take me to feel better were so much more realistic. However, I also went back to work very cautious about my self-care because I knew that I had been, you know, really emotionally had a very hard time the first time around. I was not ever the first time around treated for anxiety. I did eventually get through it. The second time around, when I hit about eight months pregnant, I had a complete freak out that I was going to have postpartum anxiety again. And so I immediately made an appointment with a psychiatrist and I saw her for a few sessions. Actually, I saw her right before I gave birth and then for a few sessions right afterward. And she just looked at me and she was like, I think you're fine. Do you think you're fine? Are you feeling the joy? And I was like, I am feeling the joy. I didn't feel it this way last time. And so, but I knew as with everything that I, that I offer as advice in the book from all of these other moms, as well as for myself, just the act of knowing what I had needed 
and being the kind of person who would give that gift of care to myself that meant more to me than anything. So, you know, like in the book, there's, you know, there's a, there's, there's obviously much deeper stuff too, but there's some, there's some information about style and beauty and that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, um, the hair expert is talking about going and getting your hair cut. You don't just get your hair cut so that you look better and you project that to the world. You go get your hair cut before you go back to work because you feel like, oh, I'm the kind of person who had my act together enough and felt good enough about myself that I could, I could go get a haircut. And mm-hmm. you really internalize that sense of self-worth. And so the second time around, I definitely felt a lot more of that going back. I could really, I knew, I knew how valuable what I, had been, what I had been through was in the workplace and that I was coming back to work as a mom stronger actually than I had been before in so, so many ways that research actually proved. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because we talk so much on the show. We've had a number of guests where we've really kind of honed in on this this idea that early motherhood is actually one of the most creative and prolific times in a woman's life. And and I think so much of the language around working moms is that, you know, you lose a few years and that, you know, you're not as effective and you are distracted and you are, you know, all of those things. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, about that research and, and what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is a bunch of research that actually supports the fact that, you know, you come back to work more capable than before. Um, One thing that's really interesting, you were talking about um, creativity. So I will say like the research has progressed even since I wrote the book, the research that I looked like that I looked at about creativity um, essentially said that you start to feel creative again, truly creative in a productive way about a year after giving birth. And I sort of use that as evidence of the fact that like, yes, we need longer paid leave in this country. Here's one more reason for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually there was a study that came out maybe six months ago. There was a beautiful, beautiful story about it in the Atlantic um, online. I think maybe in the magazine as well, but definitely online. Um, that that, That proved that actually new mothers have this incredible burst of creativity and they showed it by, um, it was a test that had been done on rats. And so the rats were actually, um, mind blowingly creative in how they found food through a maze for their babies. Mm. Um, the problems that they solved that, you know, had they been given that problem before they were mothers, they wouldn't solve it. And that you gave it to a new mother rat and she solved all these problems in new and creative ways that she'd never seen demonstrated before. And yet she was able to do it. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I'm not sorry, I love comparing people to rats, but like <laughs> I, I took that, I take that face value. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, but what the research did show, which, which is in the book, um, and which I do talk about when I go into these companies is that first of all, first of all, you've just been home. If you've been home on a maternity leave, no matter how short or how long you've been home with a drill sergeant of a baby, that baby is the hardest, toughest <laughs> boss you've ever had in your life. And <laughs> he or she has really prepared you for so much at work. So a lot of women talk about how much more efficient they are. And it's true. They, they are efficient because largely because you have most people have sort of a, an end, you know, a hard stop at the end of their day at which you need to go home and take over, you know, go to daycare, pick up the baby or whatever it is, like your day has to end. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. That's part of what makes you efficient. But actually the research shows that it's more than that. It's that your transition time between activities or duties or projects or whatever you're working on shortens. Um, you are much more likely to just be able to pivot from one 
one, you know, one thing you're working on to the other much more quickly mm-hmm. than you were before because that baby's taught you to, because the baby needed to be changed and then the baby cried and then the baby needed to be burped. Like, you know, yeah. it's all, the, the <laughs> baby, the baby doesn't give you like, it's not like, okay, mom, pause, take a break between these things, check your email and then come back to me. No, yeah. like you have to just learn to, to change your direction and your mindset very quickly. So the baby prepares you for that. That's one thing. And then a lot of women, and this is also true. A lot of women find that they have an easier time saying no to things after they become mothers. And I don't actually love, um, I don't, I don't love broadcasting that message kind of the way it has been broadcast before, because yes, of course you should be allowed to say no to things that are important to you. But when you look at what it is, it's actually that they're doing the negotiating in their minds of, if I say yes to something, what, what, you sort of do the compromise math yeah. in your mind. Like, what am I not going to be able I to do to say so that I can to? Say yeah. Exactly. And what, what is it going to take for me to be able to say yes to going out, you know, for a drink with a colleague, you know, because it's good for my career and networking or taking on this new project or going for a promotion. So as much as we say it's easier to say no, and it is, I also really hope that new moms hear the message that when you do say yes, it's a more meaningful yes Mm -hmm. than it ever was before, because you've really done the negotiating with yourself to figure out, is this worth it? Okay. Yes. So if you say yes to something, you're going all in on it. And that's really worthwhile. Mothers are committed in the workplace when they're there. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of, all kinds of ways that, that new motherhood makes you actually better at your job. Um, and, and new fatherhood too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I'm sure that that's a huge part of, of the, you know, the work that you're doing with these companies is convincing them of that, because I'm sure that so many large corporations are convinced that they're going to, it's going to cost them to employ, you know, mothers or women that are in that season of life. Right, right. Well, thankfully, there actually is research that you can just, you know, you can, you can hyperlink and throw in an email that actually shows the financial benefit of retaining women. And there's, I mean, there's some statistics. So we know that 30% of professional level women um, drop out of the workforce within a year of having had their baby. That's, you know, that is not just a loss of that employee and the cost of replacing that employee. That is a much more, it's much harder to quantify, but real cost of the investment you had previously made in that employee to mm-hmm. train them. So, you know, you're paying for their replacement, you're paying for the job search, but you're also paying for this loss of work mm-hmm. that you've put into developing this person's career. Um, so there's that. And it's just, uh, there's there are so many benefits to having women in positions of power in the workplace. And so I look at these companies that want me to help them do a better job of retaining women. And it is something of a catch-22 because the best way to retain women is to have women in positions of power. So you need to start promoting them now. You need to, you know, perhaps change the rules of what it takes to get on the partner track if that's going to be entirely tied into billable hours. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've got to have... 50-50, you know, men, men, women on your executive board. You just, you have to be committed to parity and only then will the start sorting itself out. I think you also have to allow men and encourage yes. men to take paternity leave and same-sex partner couples. There needs to be no, no gendering of the parental leave that people yeah. take and not even, I truly believe, not even a primary parent versus secondary parent, which is one well-intended way a lot of companies have tried to deal with it. But as soon as you do that, there is a power dynamic set up at home that is going to make one person's work more valuable than the other. And uh, more often than not, the person whose work is not going to be as valued is the woman's. And then that comes right back to work with her. Mm. And then she's, you know, genuinely less committed in the workplace because she's being told her work is not as valued. 
Lauren, I love that you said that because I think so much emphasis that I hear just as far as, you know, whether it's like news content or people posting is so often about the sole advocation for the evolution of women's time off. And um, I think you're so right on. And I've, I've read that also in, you know, studies that it it shows that your your culture actually is completely supportive of maternity leave. If there's yeah. paternity leave, it's paternal right. leave for both parties. Exactly. And that's what exactly. will actually change that culture. I think that's really something that people kind of tune out in the sense of, I feel like, and it's easy for me to feel this way, whether that's as a woman or even now being a midwife practitioner versus being an OB mm-hmm. practitioner is you, you, you kind of are, you feel like you're starting at a base deficit where it's like, well, we don't have all these things. So we need to get these things for ourselves when really you right. need to be asking those big culture shift questions where it's like, what if it wasn't just about me trying to get equal for myself or something new for myself, but about actually changing what the entire workplace's approach was to parenthood. Mm-hmm. Right. And even for, you know, for women who are you know, in, a, in an unsupportive workplace or who feel like they can't ask for these things, you know, it does actually start in the home too. You know, if you have a partner, if you're not a single mom, if you have a partner, you have to really realize that that, pers- that partner is a partner and is a resource in raising this child. And that does mean even if you are home on maternity leave and, you know, I'm going to be binary about it, but in dad is, you know, off at work, that both of you need to be up in the night taking turns losing a little sleep to be take care of that baby if that baby yeah. needs caring for because the work you do in the home keeping a new human baby alive is actually the most valuable work in the world it just is there's no arguing yeah. with that so you know some of it starts then and then some of it is also about asking your partner to push limits in you know in his or her own workplace and in really you know, take advantage of whatever leave is offered and, and potentially even ask for more the way you would too. Um, what we see, what we see with, particularly with, um, the millennial generation of moms is that they're, they're really achievers, you know, and they've really been told they can do anything they set their mind to and, and they believe that they deserve that and they do. But what happens when they're home on a maternity leave without, you know, and, and dad is back at work already is that they become experts at all things, baby. You know, they really, they, they treat mothering for better and for worse, like it's a job and they, they learn every little bit about it, but that's the deficit of dad who hasn't learned anything. So if dad can be home at the same time, if you can take turns, if dad or partner can actually take like, um, a, 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 it's called intermittent leave where, you know, maybe they take parental leave at the end of your parental leave. So they get some time alone with baby at home too, really knowing what it's like to be in charge all of that sets you up. The research shows it sets you up for, you know, advantageous parenting into the teenage years, which is really pretty well. Wow, I love that. I mean, that, that just feels like it's like Lara said, so completely missing from the conversation, even in like really well-balanced, well-intentioned family setups. You know, I think of my own relationship yeah. or of so many of the relationships of my friends where on the surface, it looks like, yeah, we both, you know, we both take care of the kids and yeah, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not just like the sole caregiver of this child. And yet there's a total lack of connectivity between these experiences. And so, I mean, just even hearing you say the effects that this could have on, you know, parenting during the teen years, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm starting to, (laughs) I'm starting to really see things through that filter of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the future and a not so distant future. And realizing that in my relationship, I'm the one who is on on an unspoken level expected to figure out like, well, what do you, how do you have the sex talk? How do you, I, you know, I mean, that's not, that research doesn't originate with my husband and it's 
not because, you know, it's not because we sat there and said like, okay, this is your job. It's just sort of built in because of all of these little tiny layers of just disparity. Yeah. And culture. culture. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's fascinating. And it also, you get to a point. So my, my boys are now six and nine and with both of them, but particularly with the nine-year-old, I'm realizing it's also, it's not just about the fact that you want things to be fair in the marriage. It's that I'm raising these boys who I want to be yeah. good partners one day. And I have to model for them. You know, when, when, when my husband and I do something wrong, we're starting to kind of admit it to them and say, Hey, we're learning along the way, you know, or when we do something right and we share something, we point mm-hmm. it out to them, um, not to self-congratulate, but to say, Hey, look, this is working, but, and here's why, because, you know, we're in this together as a whole yeah. family. That's powerful. Really? Well, Lauren, I'm curious what you would say. So, you know, you have this, you know, carved out area that you're working with really and awesome large companies. But what would you say to someone who's maybe they're an individual who works for a small company? I am planning on starting a family and I know that my culture is not friendly. Like, what is my first step? Yeah. So it's so interesting when I, um, I don't know if you guys know how the process works for, for pitching a book, but I did a proposal and within that was, a, um, was a table of contents and literally the only chapter I added after the book was, was approved and, and I was starting to work on it was a chapter for moms mm-hmm. who work for themselves. And I actually decided to make it, it's for moms who work for themselves, but also for moms who own their own companies. And it included everybody from, you know, a, a medical transcriptionist, you know, outside of Columbus, Ohio, who's awesome. She was at the time a single mom, kid with special needs, you know, real um, pressures on her to provide, um, as well as a woman who ran her family's company that she had just taken over from her father and it had a thousand employees nationally. These women actually had a lot of the same mm-hmm. challenges um, and neither one felt like she could take a maternity leave at all. So the question that I actually sort of gave to myself to try to solve. Um, and, and <laughs> as usual, I didn't, I didn't actually solve it, but I got a lot of, a lot of, um, suggestions from a lot of people <laughs> yeah. who'd been through it. Um, it, can you take maternity leave when you have, you know, when you work for yourself and when you're, you know, a sole proprietor and the answer really comes down to being as good a boss to yourself universally as you would expect to have in a corporate environment, you know, so we all think of working for the man and you think like, I deserve good benefits. I deserve this. I deserve that. Well, you know, if you're your own boss, part of the pleasure and joy of that is, it should be being able to be a good boss to yourself. And that does mean, you know, forcing yourself to take some vacation time, forcing yourself to have some time when you are not available. Um, you also typically, a lot of the women who work for themselves and, um, and are planning a family do, do do a lot of planning. Um, a lot of the single moms I talked to in the book were um, working for themselves, not coincidentally because it gave them a lot of flexibility, but they had also, most of them actually were single moms by choice and they had um, really financially planned um, for how they were going to make this work. And they were transparent to varying degrees about their motherhood with mm. their clients. Um, so in in a corporate workplace, I am a huge, huge advocate for being, you know, even going one step beyond as transparent, as transparent as you feel like you should be about mm-hmm. your motherhood in the workplace. But I, I totally understand that, you know, in some, um, in some businesses, if you're working for yourself, if you're working out of your home and you have these five clients and if you lose one, that is, 
you know, you're not going to be able to pay for your health insurance. Um, and that client is not going to be understanding that you might need to cloak a little bit of your motherhood with, with that client. Um, I talked to some people who told me they never even told their clients that they were pregnant. They just sort of decided that they would, you know, dip in and out of work pretty immediately after having had the baby. It's really, really challenging. And I think the one thing that we can all do is recognize that everyone's work life balance situation is, is tenuous and is hard and just, you know, cut it out with the mothers judging other mothers. I have so, so little patience for that. And I actually don't even see that much of it happening anymore about right. who works, how, you know, who works full time, who works in the home, who works out of the home, who works for themselves, who doesn't work. Well, I actually don't know anybody who yeah. actually <laughs> doesn't work. Even the people I know who don't receive a paycheck, like, they work for not a paycheck, right. you know, like out of their home, taking care of their children, or they, you know, they volunteer in all the slots that I don't always have time to take, you know, collecting books for, for the library. You know, there's, there's a recognition that we all need to do as women looking at each other to know that this is a really, really full and rich and wonderful and challenging time of life. And that we're better off being in it together than we are factioning ourselves off into yeah. arguments. Very, very true. I always think of like a village where, you know, you trade services and we might think that, you know, the doctor is more valuable than the shoemaker and perhaps that, you know, certain tasks take more time or more skill or, you know, whatever that requires. But at the, at the end of the day, like everyone needs shoes and everyone needs to go to the doctor, you know, <laughs> it's how, how are we, yeah, how are we differentiating absolutely. between the person, you know, the person who has to work a night shift at Seven yeah. Eleven, and the person who, you know, goes to some fancy corporate gig. I mean, it's, yeah. I love that. And also like you need your shoes every single day. If you have shoes with the holes in the bottom of them, you're going to yeah. notice that every hour of your day. You know, but the doctor, right. you may only go every couple months. Absolutely. And I think about that. I had a conversation with someone who it's their core value that they would stay home with their children and really like staunchly believes it's like, yeah, my, you know, like, so I don't really care that much about maternity leave because I think women should do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, mm-hmm. you know, obviously like anyone who has that staunch of a stance, I'm kind of like, well, let, let's like find somewhere in the middle. And the middle we found was what yeah. we mentioned, which is basically like she would have loved that her husband would have gotten right. paternity leave. Because right. she's had right. three children and her husband has never had paid time mm-hmm. off to spend with them. They've had to, you know, they've yeah. used some of the vacation time, which again, you know, is such a hard thing to sacrifice when you mm-hmm. only get two weeks a year or something like that. But then on top of that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like she reflects on her experience and it's like, yeah, it would have been really nice to have like, you know, more shared because, you know, she's she's aiming also for some shared parenting goals. And maybe yeah. if he had been there in the, in the early times, he would have understood more what it was like from three to six months and when it was mm-hmm. difficult, and, yeah. you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, those are the people that I want to say like, yeah, I get it. You're not going to necessarily like wear a working mom to the best kind of moms or anything kind of sticker or badge, no. but you do have to realize what you're advocating for is increased involvement in children's lives. Yeah. And, and valuing of parenting mm-hmm. as actual yes. work. Um, my friend Francesca has the best line that I now use all the time. She never, you know, when you're, when you're first group meeting a new group of people, um, it's tempting to say like, Oh, do you work? What do you do? You know? And so instead she asks, so do you work for a paycheck or do you work That's for awesome. not a paycheck? <laughs> because it's, 
that is what it mm-hmm. is. It's all work. You know, we're all working together to create the next generation of, yeah. of people. Yeah. That's, that is such a, I mean, it's so, it's blunt, but it's such a good way of putting it. And I feel like I always struggle in that yeah. initial conversation with, it's always with women. I don't ever question whether like you don't, you don't have a conversation with a man. You're like, should <laughs> I ask him what he does? Like you just assume, you know, you just assume that he yeah. has some kind of, some kind of job and it's, it's only, it's only a question that we face when we're talking with other women and it truly can be awkward where you're like, you know, and then, and then you answer the person answers the question. I mean, for me, even, you know, I, I worked in a, not a corporate setting, but I owned a small business for many, many years. And I still struggle with, you know, people asking me what I do and I, you know, I intentionally have carved my life out so that I, you know, only work a a small number of hours a week, most of the time anyways. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to be with my kids a lot but I somehow feel like I have to qualify that, which, yeah. It, and it's only and because of, busier. I'm, I'm, I'm as busy, if not busier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's so ridiculous that even, you know, even though I have this awareness and, you know, this, this sort of posture of, you know, realizing the, the effort and the importance and the value and the hard work of, of being a mother that I still feel like I have to qualify that I don't, you know, work 60 hours a week out of the home like I used to. (laughs) Right. And I think it's really, I think it's really important that we not blame ourselves for those feelings and that, you know, and what I even tell, you know, women who are in non-ideal work situations is, you know, it's actually, it's not your fault. Definitely not your fault. It's not even really your boss's fault. And it's not even really your company's fault or your industry's fault. This is a much bigger cultural problem than all of that. And so that's why, you know, I kind of think no matter, well, I mean, I know where my politics lie, but, you know, I, I, I kind of think there's a universal need, you know, no matter how you feel politically about how involved the government should be in our lives, to recognize the value of childcare, to recognize the value of good health care, to recognize the value of of parental leave, you know, for parents who need to heal and be able to go, be, you know, capable, good balanced parents for their babies who they want to then go on and grow up and be good productive workers one day themselves contributing to the economy if we have to put dollar signs on everything like all of that is something that is nobody can argue with any of that who doesn't want you know healthy happy kids to grow up and you know do good work in the world one day um so but i think it does have to start at a federal level in order for us to all think of it as normal you know in in norway this is normal and and, you know, if you're a mom in Norway, I don't think you're feeling, you know, particularly conflicted about the fact that you're working the number of hours you're working and, you know, momming the number of hours that you're momming. You know, it's just not, it's not a question. Yeah, it's it's a much simpler equation and not that people don't have to figure it out and make compromises and, you know, do all of those same things. But it's the the weight of it, the burden of it is is so much different. Not on yeah. you. Yeah, that's actually so. Uh, there was a um, reproductive psychiatrist who I interviewed in the book who was talking about how a lot of her patients or new moms were having to negotiate things back at work. And the thing that she tells them before they go back into that conversation is to is is that is that it's you know it's not your fault first of all, but also just remember contextually that you, the United States is the only place in the world where you would have to ad hoc negotiate this stuff mm-hmm. for yourself. 
everywhere else, it's just decided for you. And everywhere else in the world, it, you're not going to judge yourself for it. But here you are because you've had to you've had to have this internal debate that everywhere else would just be kind of normalized. Right, for and you've you. succeeded or not succeeded based on you know whatever goals you have set for yourself, and whether you were able to you know to successfully negotiate that. It's it's a really right. That's a really right. tricky thing. Yeah. And you live in a culture where you see lots of different manifestations. I remember we had early on in um, the show, we had a guest who shared, you know, she was in this corporate career and she looked and it was like, you either, there's two choices for being a mom in this environment. One is that you are here all the time and someone else raises your kid. And the other mm-hmm. is that you eventually leave. There was, she had no middle ground. And so I feel like wow. even in, even in um, environments where there's built in expectations and built in you know, protocols, I guess, for lack of a better word, you see people do it in all different ways. Like you were saying, like maybe they don't take all of it up front. Maybe they take it throughout the year. Maybe they take it in a chunk when they realize their kids are at an age where they want to have like some time to travel or to go see family or whatever, you know, whatever the reasoning is, you kind of see people express and utilize that 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 benefit in different ways. It doesn't even necessarily mean like you get 12 weeks at home altogether Mm -hmm. right away. Right. Right. And this is becoming the new norm, by the way. I mean, so I, I worked in a very like, butt in chair have to be at the office kind of career. And so I was, I was genuinely shocked when I went to do these interviews, when I realized that there were very few people who actually worked that way. A lot of people had kind of this hodgepodge of work that they did, or they worked odd hours, or they had flexibility, you know, um, and that that was eye-opening to me at the time because we all kind of think of our own little bubble of normal of what's normal. So it's actually really good to make friends with other moms in other, in other industries too, for that reason. Um, I found that to be a very, a very helpful thing on maternity leave. And it's something I recommend to other people to just sort of expand your, your definition mm-hmm. of what's normal. Um, can really be eye-opening and it can also be really um, empowering as you as you go into negotiations and it's important to remember that you know the generation so the so millennials by the year 2025 are going to be 75 percent of the workforce and you know for all of the discussion of the you know supposed entitlement like I'm sorry what what are they what are they so entitled to they're entitled to having a life that they believe in and love and enjoy like if they help us kind of change our norm you know, to allow for a more balanced existence that's happy and satisfying, like, well, clutch my pearls. That just sounds terrible, right? I mean, that sounds great. So, you know, and these, these companies that are not, not on board with it and not realizing that flexible work is going to be the new norm very soon and that they're going to lose their talent over it if they don't offer it, they're going to be dinosaurs. They're, they're not going to survive. There are a couple of key industries that, you know, have that, that might, you know, I mean, sort of like big laws, really tough, anything billable hours, but you know, for the most part, people are demanding it and it's going to happen for good reason. And yes, they are still going to be like back on email at 10 o'clock at night. That's part of the trade-off. But, um, you know, I have great hope for how this generation of brand new moms right now are going to impact generations yeah. to come. Yeah, it is very, very obvious that that culture is shifting in those ways. And so I'm curious to ask you, based on you know these these international models that we all kind of know about, you know from the, the articles that we see in our in our Facebook feeds and and whatever else, and 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 from the research of people like you who are who are compiling research, you know, knowing that we have these different international models of of parental leave that that seems to work really well for these different cultures, and then also balancing that mm-hmm. with the fact that we don't have, like you said, sort of that federal 
mandate where this is what is available to every person. What are some key things that, you know, an expectant mother that works for, you know, some, whether it's, whether it's a big corporation or a small company, but someone who knows that they're going to have to get creative and maybe do some negotiation with their boss, with their company, what are some key things for them to consider and, and ways to think outside of the box? Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. So I would say, you know, and this, this ship may have sailed already for some of your listeners, but as early on in your pregnancy, as you've announced your pregnancy, or if you're adopting and expecting, you're expecting a baby, start that negotiating now, because it becomes the earlier you tackle it, it becomes less of a sloughing off of duties of, Oh, I don't really think I want to travel. Oh, I don't know if I want to, you know, I can I work from home on Fridays. It's much less of getting rid of stuff and more about who can I train around me who wants to grow into this? I think I foresee that it's going to be harder for me to, you know, fly three mm-hmm. times a month as I have been, but who, who is working around me who is junior to me and maybe not quite ready for that much outward facing client stuff, but I've got nine months or whatever at that point, six months, and I can start helping this person develop the skills it's going to take to be able to do that. They grow into it. I feel good because, you know, I've just done a good job mentoring, like pat on the back. Um, I've also gotten myself out of doing this thing that was going to be logistically challenging. And that frankly, in that moment, I might not have even Mm -hmm. been doing that well anyway. Um, But then with the other key part is to remember that then you have to, if you've freed yourself up of one thing, you have to remember to take on something else. And it might be something that is logistically much easier, but is intellectually more complicated. So maybe now you're going to join the ethics committee at wherever you work, or you're going to do something that requires a higher level of thinking, more of a bird's eye view, less in the like nitty gritty muck of details and, and, um, uh, and the, the actual like production work of it. Um, so there's that, but then also no matter when you're having this conversation, I think the best tip I heard from these, um, these experts I interviewed who are expert negotiators, it's actually what they do for a living and their career coaches is that go into this negotiation. First of all, manage up, think about, you know, what are the other person's needs? The person who's sitting across the table from you, what are they, what are they worried about? How are you going to present this as a plan, not an ask, but I have this plan and here's how it could work. And here's how I'm still going to get my work done. So present it as a plan, but then also, you know, think about what can you, so think about what they're going to be worried about, you know, and sort of tend to all of that and then be really open to a conversation. You know, maybe it's, you have come in with three different ideas and, and take it from there. Um, but also the key, key, key thing is that you want to set a date, whether it's one or two or three months out when you reevaluate. And that lets you leave that conversation saying, could we just try this? Could we try this for like three months and see how it goes? And that is such an easier thing for a manager to say yes to. They're not, you know, signing in blood. They're saying, oh, I guess, yeah, she wants to try it. Okay, I guess we can try. And so what you know that does, your manager feels better about it, you know, because it's not permanent. It's not necessarily even setting precedent for everybody else around you yet. Um, but what you know is particularly if you have a small baby, those babies yeah. change by the week and your needs change by the week. And so three months out or two months out or whenever you make that date, you may actually have different things that are more important for you to ask mm-hmm. for, different kinds of flexibility. So it, it reopens the conversation in a way that is much more organic um, and makes everybody feel better about it. So that's, that is a, a takeaway that I wish I had had in that moment myself. Yeah, that's huge. That's so different than, you know, three months down the road, coming back to your boss and saying, hey, by the way, (laughs) you know, this isn't really working for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
That's huge. So in terms of actual, you know, maternity leave time, I mean, what does the research say about, you know, even just knowing knowing everything (laughs) everything that we know about, you know, baby's development, about postpartum healing, about all of that stuff? Like, what's your take on that? Well, so the idea, the whole idea for the name, the fifth trimester was because I had heard of this Harvey Karp idea of the fourth trimester, that human babies are born three months too early, and if they sort of wake up to the world at 12 weeks. And I thought, oh, well, geez, like that's exactly when I go back to work. Mm-hmm. And, and it is also, you know, my babies were not sleeping through the night at that point. They were of course still, you know, only drinking milk. Um, it, it's just, it's not a natural transition point and it was not chosen, you know, by the government when, when, um, FMLA went into to place, it was not chosen with any real regard to baby's development, mom's development. It was just sort of a catch all number that they thought would be improved upon eventually. And, and the eventually is, is, is very much now, um, mm-hmm. or needs to be because what the research shows is that six months is really the gold standard. Um, you know, obviously there's a little hedging you could do. Maybe it's five months in your, you know, your particular circumstance, but six months is the point at which mom's mental health is much more protected. You're much more likely to have a a a perinatal um, mood disorder after the six month mark. If you've had six months of paid leave and the paid is really key. Um, Baby's health is also um, protected at that point. And if you think about why, it's because if you're the kind of mom who wasn't able to take, you know, more than a few weeks off um, because of the nature of your job, maybe you're an hourly worker, shift worker, um, you know, you're also probably the mom for whom it's going to be really scary to have to take time away to go take your baby to get vaccinated Mm -hmm. or take baby in for, you know, a a minor sick visit or a well check. And, and so those babies tend to not be as healthy. Um, you know, also if mom is home and has more time to breastfeed and I'm very much a fed is best believer, like whatever works for you and your situation, fine. But, you know, breast milk does protect babies from ear infections and it protects their respiratory health. And, you know, all of these things are things that can, um, that can just really support the idea of moms being able to be with their babies until six months. Yeah. And it's very true that the, you know, the ability to, to breastfeed is very dependent on having that time. You know, if you have to go back three weeks after you had your baby, whether, whether breastfeeding was a huge priority for you or not, like if it was a huge priority, it's going to be very difficult for you to, to do that. I mean, it's just not just logistically not practical. I have to tell you of the moms who I interviewed, um, you know, uh, there were, there were a great number that did not breastfeed, but, um, a, a surprising percentage of them were women in the medical field because mm-hmm. they were in their residencies and internships. They didn't have the flexibility to leave a patient, you know, if they were a nurse and go to a nursing room, you know, that was, that was, mm-hmm. you know, a whole elevator bank away. It just, it to just pump. didn't work yeah. with the pump. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's my field. I've always been so surprised how, like hospitals pat themselves on the back for having like one yeah. nursing room. And it's like, well, you yeah. have 32,000 female employees. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know. My husband and I had the same conversation. <laughs> he works at a hospital and they have they have actually a good number of rooms, but he was saying, you know, that one of his residents, it was taking her a long time every time she went to pump. I was like, well, it takes how a long while. is her walk? <laughs> how long is her walk to get there? Like assume at least 20 minutes for the pumping, plus the setup, plus the storage, plus the walk there and the wait for the elevator and then the walk back, multiply times three times a day and like, go figure, babe, find her a place to pump. Right. Or like, know, that's and that's also her lunch. So <laughs> yes. Oh, right. 
going to be eating at the same time. Yeah. Or charting. <laughs> and her mother wonders why time. she never calls. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and charting. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's there are just so many challenges. Yeah. yeah. It does get easier, though. I think I have the oldest kids of the three of us, right? Um, I have an almost nine-year-old. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So close. Yeah. yeah. Mine are nine and a half and six and a half. And I, I, it's... It gets kind of emotionally more complicated sometimes, but the the physicality of oh, it is sure. definitely so much easier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I have a I have a one year old now too, so I'm kind of back in the physicality oh, wow. of it. Oh, you're in all of it. Yeah, wow. in all of it. But I I will, de- will definitely say that you know my son was seven and a half when my daughter was born, and you know that was in some ways one of the biggest shocks was just kind of diving back into that physicality because oh, you know you're really like a seven and a half year old is very independent and. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the early mornings are way past, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's like the, you know, there's the constantly tending to the relationship and there's the, you know, the lying and the whatever else, but it's, yeah. it's a different level of like, you know, you, they go to bed and it's, you're, you're there's a little less to you're stress done. about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they're also, you know, anything that is a compromise that you're making, once they're older, you can explain it to them as such, you mm-hmm. know? That's true. My mom can't be home tonight because I have to go do a talk for my book. Well, okay, we've talked about how, how important this work is to me and how it's helping other people. And that you know, that's not a conversation you can have with a six-month-old or even a three-year-old, really. Yeah. But a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, definitely, mm-hmm. they get it. It's, it's, it's so rewarding. And I know there are so many mothers who have to really out of duress, you know, drop out of the workforce and, you know, wonder what it would be like had they stayed in. And there is a point at which, you know, you can start having those conversations with your kids and it does get easier. Yeah. So for a mom who does have to go back to work at, you know, six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever that looks like, you know, knowing what we've just talked about, that that six month mark is, is more ideal for a number of reasons, but it's just not going to be practical for, for this mother. What are some, you know, a couple of, we've already talked about some of the, you know, tips on, on how to talk to your boss about it. What are a couple of creative ways that a person who has to go back earlier might still be able to kind of preserve their you know, their postpartum transition and, and ease back into the workplace? Sure. Well, one of them definitely is that intermittent leave idea is if you can have your partner, if you have one take leave at the end of your leave, when you're just going back and pad your time by like a month, you know, maybe, or or two months or whatever it is that allows you to, you know, put baby in daycare or have a caregiver that's outside of the family at a, at a later time for baby, maybe baby at that point is starting to sit up or eat solids. It just gets a little bit, um, easier and you feel, you feel a little bit better about it when baby's a little older. So that's one thing. Um, there's also this, this is, there's a lot of stuff that is about, um, kind of your own self image because so much of this is, you know, that we're back before we're physically ready and emotionally ready. And also every place that that Venn diagram overlaps. Mm. Right. And so, you know, one thing you really can do is, you can try to organize your life a little bit to serve you better in the transition moments of your day. So your mornings and your evenings, some of that is about something as simple as, you know, taking like everything that actually fits you, putting it in one little corner of your closet and only getting dressed from that little corner every day. Mm, Like like just add pieces as they start to fit more, but don't torture yourself with this whole, you know, closet of clothes that don't fit or aren't appropriate. or You haven't worn in 18 months. Um, you know, really just have, even if it's six things, you know, and you realize you don't have any pants. Okay. So go buy some pants. Um, but that's what you pull from. And so that, that helps you from necessarily starting your day from a, a point of, you know, 
annoyance mm-hmm. at least. Um, so that's one thing. And then also, you know, the transition points in the day are very often for working women line up with their commute. So as much as you can use your commute for self-care or for some other, for some other bit of your job or mothering that is going to free you up, um, in some other time in your day. So if it's self-care, you know, it can be something as simple as listening to a podcast that you love, but always take the moment to pinch yourself and say, Hey, look what I did for myself. I listened to a podcast yeah. <laughs> because you have to recognize it as self-care or you don't, and you the know, benefits are not lying yeah. down. Right. Just because you're not lying face down in a mm. massage table doesn't mean that you didn't take care of yourself today. Mm. You did. So I really, if you can use your commute for some form of self-care, great. If you can, if you're able to walk, like wonderful, you know, walk home from work if you can just to get in some, that activity and that outdoor time is really, really good. Um, if you're able to use it socially, you know, call your friends or make, make a point of, you know, checking Facebook or whatever social media you do, you know, specifically at the same time as your friends are getting on a text chain, if they're commuting at the same time every day. Um, another thing that, um, some, um, interviewees told me that they did is they would carpool with, um, with colleagues and take turns being the person who extended their work day. So the person who was, who was not driving would like bring some work and do some work in that passenger seat for, you know, the half hour, Mm -hmm. 45 minutes or whatever it took to get home. Um, if you can drive and talk schedule, if you have a call, like schedule your last call at the end of the day for a little bit earlier and go ahead and be driving while you do that call. All of these things are things that you might think because they weren't normal to you before that they feel like you're breaking the rules somehow. Well, no, if you're getting your job done, you're not breaking the rules. So, you know, you have to redefine what's normal to make it okay and not feel guilty Mm. about it. Lauren, I love all of those examples because I feel like they're so practical and also, you know, kind of what you mentioned in negotiating with your employer. They're also very doable and attainable. And they don't cost anyone anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, you know, as much as that, I don't think that's necessarily how it should be evaluated. It's a lot of times the lens that you're being seen through when you're asking for alternative work or yeah. alternative work habits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like I just also want to say thank you so much for what you're doing, you know, whether you've gotten a paycheck or not, not a paycheck for it. I'm sure there's been many seasons <laughs> of both of those in this process. Exactly. Yes. And, um, you know, we understand that getting information out, um, the way you're doing it, whether that's, you know, be on our show or putting your book out or speaking at businesses, this is how movements are being strengthened. I like the fifth trimester movement is that women are hearing that it doesn't have to be a certain way and asking for more or expecting more. And I think that's really powerful. So I want to say thank you because I know I'm, I'm sure it's cost you different things throughout this process. And we were, we were, yeah, we were talking about it earlier today, even just, you know, you might choose a certain avenue for your work or your motherhood journey or like what you do in your community. And there's inevitably something else that you're also doing, like or, being, yes. or pa- your passion is about as well. So it's like, I do this, yeah. you know, from these hours and these days and then everything else kind of yeah. about this thing. So it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it's a pleasure and an honor to get to actually do something meaningful as at least mm-hmm. part of my work. Um, and thank you guys for just shining a light on new motherhood and, and celebrating it and being honest about it and helping people feel like they have a community to turn to. It's really, it, it makes 
such a difference. Well, we are, we're so glad that you were able to come and share with our listeners today. We can't wait to share this episode. People, we're going to have um, information about Lauren's book, The Fifth Trimester, on the show notes on our blog. You can also find it on Amazon, um, or you can go to thefifthtrimester.com. That's her website. I just love this idea that new mothers are even more capable and even more creative, and I think that that is just such an important <laughs> message for, for women. Just, I mean, you know, new motherhood is so fraught with all of the feelings of identity shifting and, you know, inadequacy and all of these things. And we just need, you know, women need to know that you are more capable than ever. You are more creative than ever. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much, Melissa and Laura. You too. Great talking to you. You too. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook, where we have all kinds of behind the scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Lara and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. 